You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. We really do believe that God answers prayers, and that is why we pray each and every week. Today, we're coming to the end of our sermon series called Hashtag Here, Now, Us. And uh, we've been in the book of Nehemiah, so I invite you to turn to Nehemiah 8. And some of you uh, have actually told me that you've loved this story and didn't know it existed in the Bible, uh, which is really fun. That's one of the reasons we like reading the whole Bible. Uh, We think the entire thing, from Genesis to Revelation, is the Word of God. And the amazing thing is, when you keep reading it, you'll find that there's story after story that will surprise uh, and encourage you and convict you and lead you closer and closer to Jesus. And Nehemiah is is just uh, one of those. So Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to be at verse 1. All the people gathered together in the square before the water gate. We told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could hear with understanding. This was on the first day of the seventh month. You read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and all those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a wooden platform that had been made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maaseah on his right hand, and Padiah, Misahil, Machaijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. They bowed their heads, and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Aku, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maseah, Kelithet, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. So they read from the book, the law of God with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and all the Levites who taught all the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. They rejoiced because they understood the message. They started telling other people and explaining it because they understood the message, and it filled them with joy. They couldn't keep it to themselves. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where something clicks that you didn't quite understand. When I was a a kid, about nine years old, there was this day my dad came home, one of those long days at work, you know, been in traffic, and he gets out of the garage, and he walks in through the the kitchen, and there's this dining room table, and right on the dining room table, there is this yellow legal pad. And on it are written two words, get Luke. 
And my dad picks it up and says, all right, it's time to go get nine-year-old Luke Parker from soccer practice. And he turns around, he starts heading out the door, and as he walks, all of a sudden the page kind of flips, and he sees that there's more writing on the next page. So he keeps reading. You took them off outside because it was pouring rain and you were wet and messy. Where did you move them? Where is today's homework? And finally, STOP, all caps, exclamation point. And my dad puzzled over this for a little bit, and then something clicked. He realized he had misunderstood the message at first. That actually, this was a conversation, or only half of a conversation, between my mom and me and my brothers. That she had lost her voice that day, and was trying to communicate with us on paper and actually yell at us quite a bit on paper, which is hard to do. Uh, but we needed some yelling, and so my mom figured out a way to do it. All of a sudden, the message clicks, and, and he understands. Now, that may have happened to you in different ways over the years, but I think we all know what that feels like. That great moment when you're in seventh grade, and you finally understand what your third grade math teacher was talking about. And you think, this is amazing, and oh no, that means that I'm like four years behind. This is never gonna, I'm never going to catch up to like math. Or if you're watching Jeopardy and all of a sudden somebody says something and you think, no, you're wrong, and it turns out that you're right and you should be on Jeopardy and you could win it all, and you turn off the TV right then and there because you know it's never going to get any better than that moment when you were right and all the smart people on Jeopardy were wrong. When it clicks and suddenly you just, you know what it's all about. And in this story, the, the message that makes sense to them, that suddenly they finally understand, is really the message that you and I think of as the gospel, which is a fancy Christian word that means good news. The idea that life has meaning and purpose, but you actually get to find out what those things are. Why am I here on this earth? Why does God care about me, and does, is there a God, and does he care about me? What, what does all of this mean, and, and what is my life really for? Those big, fundamental human questions that Christianity answers. And the way, really, that we answer those questions is really just one word, grace. Sometimes just with a name, Jesus Christ. This message, the gospel, the good news. That God so loved the world. God so loved the world, he refused to let it be miserable. And so he sent his son into the world to save us. The story that we have that starts in Genesis, where God made the world good, where God made you good. And then it all goes horribly wrong. And ever since then, humanity has been broken. And that's the easiest part of the story to believe. If you look around, it is easy, especially if you know at least one other person, to believe that human beings are flawed. And that we need something to fix the situation. And God's solution to this is not just to send us messengers, not just to give us a book, not just to do miracles from on high, but to become one of us. To show us what it looks like to be a human being. To die for us on the cross. And then to be raised from the dead so that you know and that I know that death is not the end of our story. That death does not have to be the final word in your story or in anyone else's. God so loves the world 
this is the message that finally they understand in this story. And some of us know what it's like to sort of feel that moment where it, where it all clicks for us. Maybe that happened at baptism for you, or maybe that's happened in a worship service for you, or in conversations with somebody you know and you love, or maybe when you prayed a prayer as a kid at a camp. And yet for some of us, that, that moment is sort of there and then fleeting, and then after a while you start to wonder if you really understand it at all. And, and others of us sort of have, have kind of wandered away from this and are maybe trying to figure out if we can reconstruct our way back into believing in Jesus. And we know other folks are here today, honestly, who weren't sure that they believe in Jesus and are kind of curious and skeptical and asking a lot of questions. And, and we're really glad you're here wherever you're at when it comes to understanding this message. Because the truth is that many of us who even kind of understand what this means are still trying to figure it out. We're still telling ourselves the same stories, still trying to dive deeper and deeper into this because it's huge. What Jesus has done is huge. And I'm still trying to work out the ramifications for my life, even as I'm explaining it to you. Do you understand the message? Two tests, I think. Not tests from me to you, but two ways of kind of evaluating whether or not you understand this message for yourself. Maybe just in a given moment or today. Number one, do you understand the message well enough to explain it to others? Two, does it fill you with joy? Those are two questions that this story asks of us. Do you understand the message well enough to explain it to others? It starts in verse 1 when all of the people gather together. And they all gather together to celebrate this amazing thing that God has done in and through Nehemiah, in and through the community of God. In eight chapters, God has rebuilt Jerusalem. Out of the, the dust and the ashes of history, something has been reborn. Even the enemies of the people of Israel are amazed and start to believe that maybe their God is real. Because out of all of their broken dreams, out of their shattered reality, in the midst of their, their flaws and their failure and their humanity, God has taken all of that and restored and redeemed and rebuilt. And they can see it. It's tangible. It's real. It's, right in front. it's not that God just sort of starts from scratch all over again. God took all of the broken pieces of their past and then reassembled them into this brand new thing, which is so much more beautiful because it was broken. So much more amazing because it's been shattered. And they're all standing in this rebuilt city in this impossible reality that God has made happen. And they want to praise God. And they want to tell the story again. Because they know actually that this isn't really just about a construction project. This is a spiritual project. There's actually a lot of work that still needs to be done. And that this was never really about rebuilding Jerusalem. It was about rebuilding the people of God. Much in the same way that the church is not about a building, but about a community of people that's actually trying to be disciples of Jesus Christ. These people get it. And they say, we need to hear the story again. A story they know, a story they've heard since they were children. We need to hear the story again. And so they ask Ezra to stand up and read the story. Ezra, by the way, is a guy who has his own book in the Bible. And in that book, he is constantly telling the story. So he's back in this book, telling the same story that he's always telling, reading the same book that we have always read. And Ezra starts at the beginning, and people start hearing about Abraham. Abraham, who loved God. Sarah, who loved God. And how God saw their faith and changed their lives. 
about Moses and the people of Israel who were stuck in slavery, and before they had ever worshipped God, before they had ever done anything for him, he delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. How God walked them into a land of promise. How God gave them rules to live by that would keep them safe. How he delivered them from their floods and from their enemies. And how they ignored him. And how it all fell apart. This is our story. This is their story. And as Ezra reads the story, there are people who help him. We're trying to help people understand this story. And it says in verse 8, they stood around and they started explaining it. So that people would get the sense. So that it would be clear. So that they would understand the message. The thing about what it is to follow Jesus is that you and I are always in the process of evangelism. Evangelism is not just for those who do not know Jesus, not just for non-Christians. I am always telling you the same story, that there's a God who loves you so much he died for you. And you are always telling me that same story. There's a God, Luke, who loves you so much he died for you. That we're constantly reminding each other of our story, because we need to hear it again and again and again and again. And the challenge of that sometimes is that we learn to speak a particular language. It's called Christianese. And some of you know Christianese, and some of you have never heard the expression. It's not a real language, by the way, just in case there's confusion. It's just a way of talking that Christians have that we develop over time when we talk to each other in Bible studies and other places. And it's great, but it really doesn't help when you're trying to explain it to people who don't understand what we already understand. And so when people say, well, I had a word from the Lord the other day, or I'm in a really rough season right now, or, you know, I've, just, I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Those sentences make no sense to people who do not follow Jesus. In fact, words like grace and gospel make no sense to people who do not follow Jesus. And we're going to need to learn to speak their language. We're going to need to learn to speak their language if we want people to understand this great good news that we have. Because if you really understand this story, you will tell other people about this story. You will feel an urgency to bring other people into this story because you will realize that you have been given hope in a world that has no hope. That when everyone around you is lost and wondering if life has any meaning at all, you know absolutely the truth of the human story. You have seen it in the person of Jesus Christ. You have the answers to the questions that everybody else is asking. And they are desperate for that. 176,000 people have died in the United States as of today. Many of those people did not know Jesus. We have got to share this story with those people. They are in desperate need of that story. If we understand it, we will try to explain it to other people so that it makes sense. Now, I know some of you, again, are still not in a place where you understand the story. And some of you have kind of like just started to follow Jesus and just started to wander into this. And that's incredible. And you might be thinking, well, I don't think I understand the story well enough to explain it. That's okay. In fact, you have a huge advantage over some of us who speak Christianese, uh, which is that you never learned the language, so you won't confuse your friends. In fact, your friends will say, well, you're just like me, and you'll know that I was just like them. And so when you start explaining what it is to follow Jesus, they'll hear it and go, man, this, this really makes sense to me because you understand me. You speak my language. Now they explain the story so that it made sense to people, so that they understood. We want to be people who explain the story. And the nice thing about not really understanding is you come from a place of humility and you go, look, I don't know everything about this God, 
but what I know I like, and I'm telling you, if you get to know Jesus, it will change your life for the better. And you won't know everything, but the things you start to learn will change you inside and out. So the question is, can we learn to speak their language? Can we learn to speak the language of the people across the street? Can we learn to speak the language of the people in the next cubicle? Can we learn to speak the language of the people we're dealing with in Zoom meetings all the time? As single people, this might mean learning to speak the language of soccer moms, which can be really challenging. As married people, it might mean remembering what it's like to speak the language of single people. Or learning how to tell the story to a nine-year-old kid who's, well, maybe your kid or somebody else's. Learning to speak the language of football or entrepreneurship. The language that people really care about. Can you say it in a way that makes sense to them? Can you begin to see reality through their eyes and hear it through their ears and communicate in such a way that they begin to understand this story? If you ask any educator, they will tell you the best way, one of the best ways to learn a subject is by teaching it. One of the best ways to understand something is by explaining it yourself. It is a great way to learn. I think this is one of the great ironies of my life, that God has actually called me into ministry so that I have to constantly explain this story because I am a horrible person who doesn't really understand the gospel. And on a regular basis, I have to explain it to a group of people, which means I have to read it on a regular basis. And so I'm constantly in the process of learning this story, constantly in the process of explaining it. And I can just tell you that it has done wonders for my life that I've become much deeper in following Jesus simply because every week I have to tell a group of people what a story means. I have to remind myself on a regular basis what it is that we believe. Are you reminding yourself and the people around you on a regular basis that we know the way, the truth, and the life in Jesus Christ, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son for you and for me and for our neighbors across the street? This story emphasizes the fact that everyone was there. It keeps saying all, everyone, anybody who could understand. It does not emphasize that Jews were there. It does not emphasize that men heard the story. In fact, it seems to be emphasizing there were people there who don't usually belong. The sort of people who are the wrong race or the wrong ethnicity. There would be people who are Persians who came with Nehemiah. People who've come back from the exile in Assyria, people who are Edomites and Moabites who've been scattered throughout Israel, Egyptians who've managed to make it through the wars, a refugee population, that's what's in Israel. If you're bringing everyone together, north, south, east, and west, and you're telling the great story of what God has done, you're going to find that the group of people is extraordinarily diverse. And this is something we know from the book of Genesis to the end of Revelation, that the Bible story is for everybody, for every tribe, every nation, every people, every tongue. Everybody. It's not just for Jews, it's for Greeks. It's not just for men, it's for women. It's not just for the, the free, it's for slaves. Not just for the wealthy and the powerful, but for everyone. This is the amazing thing about the gospel. It brings together a community of people that has no good reason to get together otherwise. And so it's not so much in our time that the church struggles with racism. It's not so much in our time that the church struggles with sexism. It's not so much that our church struggles with classism. It's that the world around us always has those kinds of corrupt structures, always has those kinds of systemic issues, and that we are a different kind of people because we know the God of the universe. We know whose image we are made in, we know whose image they are made in. And so we have to learn to speak their language. We have to learn to communicate in such a way that we're no longer coming from the background we've always come from. So we're no longer speaking to people who only look like us and who've only had the educational experiences we have, who only live in the neighborhoods we've lived in. 
because we want people to understand this great good news that we've been brought into. And it will be clear whether we understand that news or not by the kind of people who are around us, by the kind of community that has been gathered together because this message is for everyone. Can you explain it in such a way that other people understand it so that it becomes clear to those who do not look like you? One of the amazing things about our lives, right, is that we have the Bible in English. Many of us speak English. Not everybody speaks English in this community from, from birth, but many of us speak English. It's amazing. And yet we also know that all over the world there are about 7,000 languages. 7,000 languages. And the Bible's only been translated into about 1,500 languages, which is why there's uh, people like the Wycliffe Bible Society who try to gather together translators because there are 2,500 Bible translation projects underway and still 2,000 more that need to be begun because people need to hear this story in their language. Do we understand it well enough? Are we willing to learn to speak their language well enough that we can explain it to them? If you've never told anyone about the gospel, you probably don't understand it. If you're afraid to tell people about the gospel, there's a decent chance you don't understand it. And the solution to this is not to beat yourself up and feel guilty, it's to go back into the gospel and read again and again and again, to say, I probably don't understand. God, help me to understand it so that I begin to feel the urgency and this burn that my friends and my neighbors might come to know Jesus. Second way that you'll know that you understand it, it fills you with joy. It fills you with joy. All these people get together, and all these people are listening to the scriptures. And Ezra reads the story, and then in verse 4, 5, 6, 7, he, he blesses God. He, he prays God. Hallelujah, he says, when he finishes these, these readings. And all the people say, Amen. And they put their hands up, and some of them bow down on the ground. They worship God. You may notice, actually, that there's a similarity in what they are doing and what we are doing. The, the people of God have always been known to get together, to tell the story of what God has done for them, to bow down and praise the name of their God. Always. That is what we always have done, what we always will do, since before Jesus and long after Jesus. Those are some of the marks of the church. That we cannot help but adore the name of Jesus, that we cannot help but tell the story again and again and again and again. And these people, when they tell the story, they feel the, the need to respond to that story. Something happens in them. And the word for that is worship. It's not something that happens only when you sing. It's not something that happens when you pray. It's not something that happens only when you listen to scripture or when someone's preaching a sermon. Worship is something that happens on the inside of us. It's an attitude of our hearts. It's when you hear somebody talk about God and all of a sudden you go, man, like, I feel like a joy inside me. I feel a passion. I feel like I need to do something. And inevitably that involves your body. It involves going out and serving the poor. It involves standing up and raising your hands. It involves singing a song and praising God. It's one of the reasons we do sing on a regular basis. One of the reasons, even during a Zoom time, that we have bothered to put together videos of worship. Not because we want to watch someone sing, but because we know we need to respond to this. And even as these people say amen, even as these people bow down and put their hands out, apparently they are misunderstanding the message. In verses 9, 10, 11, and 12, you will see that all of the people who are worshiping God, who are hearing this story, are sad. They're just, they're so bummed out as they hear the gospel of the God of Israel. And everyone who's explaining to them is confused because you seem to understand, but you seem to badly misunderstand this story. 
because you're not filled with joy. You're not moved to celebrate. You're, you're just, you're sad and you're mourning and you're weeping the more you're, you're hearing this story. And maybe it's because Ezra's sermon started at 6 a.m. and is going till noon. And that's, that's a very long, so it's six hours. I'm not going to do that to you. people. So maybe that's part of where that comes from. But I actually think the issue is this. They start in Genesis and they keep reading, right? He's going from beginning to end. That's maybe why the reading is taking so long. As you read the story, you're going to hear about how great God is, but you're also going to hear about how miserable the people of Israel are. That time and time again, when God does great things, human beings fail. When God tells them what to do, they do the wrong thing. That in fact, the reason these people are living in a city that has been destroyed is that God eventually allowed them the freedom to destroy themselves. The reason they've lived as refugees the whole lives, the reason that their their parents have been violently murdered, some of them, the reason that their ancestors have been destroyed, they realize this is our own fault. And so they hear this story not as a story of good news, of a God who has redeemed and restored them because they're too busy focused on the fact that the whole thing has, well, been their fault. And so they're standing in a city that's been redeemed and restored and they, they can't help seeing the cracks in the walls and the chips torn out of the bricks. And they don't see the the city as more beautiful because it was rebuilt. They see the city as hideous because it had to be rebuilt at all. They misunderstand redemption. They misunderstand the gospel. Now, there are many of us, honestly, who misunderstand the gospel. Many Christians out there, many pastors out there, which is why some of us come to Jesus and we feel this kind of riding sense of guilt and shame sometimes. Or why there are people out there who, who don't necessarily believe in Jesus. And they go, well, to be a Christian, like I'm going to feel bad about myself all the time. I'm going to judge people all the time. I'm going to be kind of an angry and miserable person all the time. That's what I see. It's clear that we do not understand our own story because we're not filled with joy. The gospel is good news. Absolutely good news. That verse I quoted before was John 3.16. You see people hold it up at football games all the time. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not die but have everlasting life. The next verse goes like this. For God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. That Jesus has not come to condemn us, but to save us. That God is not showing up in this story because he's so angry with the people of Israel, but rather because he loves the people of Israel so much. It should fill us with joy. Fill us with joy, this story. Now, I understand why they misunderstood the story. I do. Because the truth is, the Old Testament is kind of hard to read without Jesus. You and I are like people who have read the end of a mystery novel. And so whenever we come to the Old Testament, we can see the grace shining through. But that's not always obvious to people who don't really know the story of Jesus. And so people go, well, the God of the Old Testament can be really angry. He's really mean all the time. But actually, that's the same God that we meet in Jesus. It's just that the God we meet in Jesus makes it really clear that it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on our efforts to serve and to follow him. Because every time it depends on us, we fail. And so Nehemiah says to these people, look, it's not about your strength. It's about the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. As long as it depends on you, you will fail miserably. And that's why we know that we need the cross. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that it is so clear that every human effort to be a good person fails. 
and that we need the God of the universe to redeem us, to save us, to restore us, to walk us through the valley of the shadow of death into a brand new kind of life, to lead us into this kind of joy. There's a great theologian in the church who says that the gospel is first and foremost bad news to anyone who has a conscience. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. What he's talking about is the reality of the cross. That to, to talk about Jesus, you inevitably have to face the fact that you are a sinner for whom Christ died. That you are somebody who is in need of redemption. I don't know if you've ever been to a, an intervention. I've, I've had the privilege on several occasions. And I have to tell you, if you've seen it in sitcoms, they always make fun of it. But it's a deadly serious thing in intervention. When someone is struggling with a serious substance abuse problem and you're sitting down and they're being surprised by friends and family and people who really care about them and all of those people start talking about all of the horrible things they're doing, all of the ways they've hurt them, all of the ways they've destroyed people in their life. And an outside observer watching this goes, man, this is a really mean thing. But that's not what an intervention is. An intervention is a moment when a bunch of people who really care about a person say, you need to change. You need to stop living the way that you're living. Things have to change. You're in desperate need of a savior. You can't keep going the way that you've been going. An intervention is not bad news. It's the beginning of good news. It's just that you're only getting half of the conversation. It's just that you're only getting part of the story. It's just that you haven't turned enough pages yet. And so you're misunderstanding what this is all about. This is all about joy. The joy of the Lord that will become your strength. As long as you can say to God, I, I can't do it on my own. I desperately need a Savior. You will find that each and every day, you are more and more filled by the joy of the Lord. It's the only real sentence in Nehemiah that's made it into Christian worship songs. the only real sentence that most people know about this entire book. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And so Nehemiah and Ezra and all the scribes and all the people who have been trying to explain it say, okay, you're really sad. We're not explaining it well. Like, we've, we've told you the story, but it's clearly like you don't understand because you're not filled with joy. As they keep saying, you don't cry. This is a holy day. Holy days are not sad days. They're good days. You, you should be eating, eating the fat and drinking the wine, going your way, sending stuff to people who don't have anything. And you and I in the 21st century, we hear eat the fat, and we go, that doesn't sound good. That's... That is exactly the, the opposite of my CrossFit regimen. Uh, that eating the fat refers to eating the best possible pieces of meat. Right? You want to eat prime rib. We're talking New York strip steak. We're talking ribs. These are fatty meats, but these are delicious meats. This is what the people really want in their lives. Go feast, he says. Drink the good wine. This is probably July, August. And so these people are, are listening to this even as the harvest is coming in, and there's this huge celebration that needs to happen. You're missing who God is, he says. This is the God who has given you the fruit of the vine, the God who has blessed you in every way. You are in the land. You are enjoying the very things that God has given you. Enjoy your life. It's been given to you by this God who wants you to experience this kind of joy. There's a philosopher in the church named Dallas Willard who used to say that God is the most joyful being in the universe. The most joyful being in the universe. People spend thousands of dollars on a saltwater fish tank. And they spend more thousands of dollars to get like seven fish just to look at them. There's no petting of the fish. You can't take those fish for a walk. They're just there. And when you and I go to a doctor's office or a dentist's office, we can just watch them. And they're gorgeous and they're amazing. And you even understand why people would go to the effort of keeping these fish. The God of the universe has seas full of them. 
just because he likes looking at them. His aquarium are the oceans of the earth. This is the God of the universe. That's just one small piece of the kind of joy of this God. That's why he's made these things that we might live and enjoy our lives. That's why he goes to the cross, that we might walk into a brand new kind of life. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We don't understand the story. We do not understand the story if we're not filled with joy. And then what continues on, he says, send this out to people who don't have anything prepared. Because the kind of people who really understand this story are constantly inviting other people into that story. Constantly inviting other people into that joy. And that means tangible things. Right, like taking care of the poor and the widow and the orphan and the oppressed. Doing the real work, actually, in our time of bringing justice to a society that's in desperate need of God's justice. Not a progressive view of justice, not a conservative view of justice, but God's justice. That we would be people who are the kingdom of God kind of people. And that we'd constantly be inviting those in who have nothing prepared, that we would invite them to share in this joy, this joy that God has invited us to share in. Friends, do we understand this story? Do we understand it well enough that we want to share it with others? That we can explain it in a way that other people understand? Do we understand the story? Do we understand it well enough that it fills us with joy the way it filled these people with joy? Because by the end of the story, they go, I finally get it. It finally clicks for them. And they go their way and they start sharing this joy with everyone they meet. Inviting people into the story. Feasting and enjoying the life that God has given them. They understood it, do we? And if we don't, just dive back in and read it again and again and again and again. Keep sticking with your community group leaders who are constantly helping us to speak this story into each other's lives to live the kind of joy that Nehemiah is talking about. We want to be people who really understand this story and who let the joy of the Lord be our strength. Would you pray with me?